Father, as we have sung of your greatness today, the greatness of your power, the greatness of your grace, the greatness of your sovereignty over all things, that you have committed yourself to working all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, we know your purposes prevail, and even as you've reminded us in the scripture reading that the the rain and the snow that come down from heaven and water the earth do not return without producing some effect of that. Lord, we thank you that your word always produces the effects that you want to accomplish, that your word is active, it is alive. We pray that you would make it so in our hearing today and in our reflection upon it, and that you would sow, as we sow the seeds, Lord, of your word, we pray that you would bring forth lasting, remaining fruit in the hearts of all those who are here today, and to any who may listen to this message online. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I am, for those of you who may not know, but I think some of you know, I am a great admirer of flowers. Uh, I think that uh, flowers are incredible in their beauty, uh, in the vast uh, palette of colors that you can find, and also their intricate designs. And uh, obviously, at the top of my list of flowers that I admire are what? Roses. Thank you. Very good. Um, I don't grow them anymore, but I still very much, very much admire them. Hybrid tea roses are unbelievably beautiful. But what's not to like about orchids or irises or gladiolas or lilies, daylilies? We have a bunch of those this summer we've enjoyed and dahlias, and on and on and on it goes. But I must confess that admiring them also helps me realize and appreciate again God, because they are really glorifying God, they are the handiwork of God. And as I look at them, I can't help but think of the one who made them. However, there's been a problem recently. I've noticed that there are some flowers that look real but they're fakes, they're phonies. And from a distance, they look like they are perhaps cut flowers or they look like they're maybe actual live plant, but upon closer inspection, maybe you've done this, you look at something you're like, oh wow, those are beautiful flowers, and you get close and you touch the petals or you touch the leaves and you're like, nah, I got faked out, that's not real. Uh, and they also have, what, if you, of course, if you're looking for a scent and you get no scent, then that's another obvious sign. And uh, in, in our house, I must confess, there are sometimes we have uh, either the plants are halfway dying or, um, or, or there's dust on the fake ones. So, you know, it, it, it gives it away after a while. It's a knockoff. But real flowers are those that are produced by organic living plants. Plants that need water, they need nutrients, that grow. They're not made of man-made materials. There's the real, the genuine, and then there are the man-made, the ones that never change, that always look the same. As I've thought about these contrasts, I've been thinking now as we conclude our series on the Epistle of Galatians, I hope you'll find your way to that book here for the last time in our series, not forever, but we'll finish with the book this morning. We're going to think about, at the conclusion of Paul's comments, he's now contrasting 
real, genuine Christianity versus those that are religious knockoffs. There are various forms of spiritual followers who do not follow to the truth, who are not uh, proclaiming the gospel of grace. They're proclaiming a gospel of works. And so here's Paul contrasting these two very obvious, different approaches to God. And I'd like to now take his final verses of his epistle, and I'd like to ask the question, what are the characteristics of a person who has entered into a living and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ? What are the marks of a true Christian? A person who is not merely religious, but a person who has been made alive by the gospel of grace. And we're going to pick it up now in verses um, 14 through 18 as we conclude here this wonderful epistle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. Galatians chapter 6, 15 to 18. 14 to 18. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Now, the first point I want to make is actually a point of review from last week. And if you were not here, I would encourage you to listen to that message online at our website, uh, which we offer freely to anybody who wants to hear any of our messages here. But the first point is we... One of the marks of a true Christian is their ongoing celebration of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we noticed that true believers have an attitude of boasting, an attitude of glorying, not in themselves, but in our Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. You see, well-grounded, growing Christians do not make it their life pattern to boast about themselves to boast about their spiritual accomplishments. They are, because of the nature of the gospel of grace, they are amazed by grace, and they're humbled by God's grace. And so they glory in what God has done for them on that cross, as Christ, in His redemptive work for them and on their behalf. Rather than attaining, attempting to gain their own merit by their own efforts at self-improvement or their own attempts at self-salvation, Christians celebrate and glory in the finished work of Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. It is Christians who have no hope of ever being reconciled to God apart from Jesus' sinless life, His righteousness, His payment for their sin, His resurrection from the dead. And so with that, I'm not going to say anything else about that, but that's verse 14 and clearly something we talked about last Sunday. The second point I want to look at in verse 15 is another characteristic or mark. He says, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. External rites, external rituals do not change anyone's heart. Whether it be circumcision, 
whether it be baptism, whether it be making a pilgrimage to Mecca, whatever it is you may do, any forms of performing a pious act does not make anyone a Christian. The gospel of grace brings about heart transformation. And what he's talking about here, I believe, in verse 15, Paul is alluding to regeneration. So point number two, regeneration that results in inner transformation through Jesus Christ. He talks about a new creation. Isn't it interesting how Paul talked about circumcision is not everything. It's significant, it was important, it was something that was commanded at one point in biblical history. But he goes back and reminds them, if you look and compare other scriptures, Romans chapter 2, Paul wrote, that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Circumcision of the heart. Very interesting phraseology here about what is God's real agenda. You see, this was God's plan from the start. All these outward signs, all these outward rituals associated with the Old Covenant, the children of Israel, they were never intended to make anyone right with God. God's concern was beyond the mere outward rituals. Look in your Bible at Deuteronomy chapter 10 just for a second. Actually, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 30 is better, actually. So take your Bible and find Deuteronomy 30. I'm going to read a verse from Deuteronomy 10 while you're turning there. Deuteronomy 10, we read Moses in his sermon there. He has three great sermons before they go into the promised land from east to west. And he says to the children of Israel, in reminding them to deal with some of the issues of their own waywardness, he says, circumcise your heart and do not stiffen your neck anymore. And then if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, God alludes to the blessing of the new covenant. Here he is talking at this point in the uh, history of the people of Israel. He's forward-looking and he says this word. Now this is the Lord speaking through Moses. The Lord your God will circumcise your what? Your heart and the heart of your descendants. To do what? To love the Lord your God and all, and all your heart and all your soul in order that you may live. You see, the real concern that God has is the gospel. And the gospel is the work of God and God's Spirit in imparting to us a new nature, a new heart. He changes us on the inside. He's not just merely concerned on what we look like on the outside or what rituals we may perform or not perform on the external part of our life. Sinclair Ferguson, in his Scottish brogue, he would always talk like that. He would say in Christian Life book he wrote, very good book, he gives this definition of regeneration. Regeneration is God's powerful, sovereign work of transformation which reaches every aspect of our experience where the ravages of sin first ventured. In other words, he's saying that if you look at how sin has affected every part of us, it's what we call about total depravity. Sin has affected our thinking, our desires, our hearts, our, uh, our, our, uh, um, 
our uh, uh, actions. Sin has affected every part of us. And he says that regeneration is now the changing and transformation of all those aspects of which sin is already affected. So he talks about our minds are illuminated now by way of regeneration, being born again. We gain a new perspective on ourselves and on other people. We have a new disposition toward right living. We have a new motivation to serve Christ. It's not because we have to, it's because we are privileged to do so out of love and of thankfulness to Him. And rather than trying to seek to win the approval of other people, our motivation is to live to honor and please Christ. Our desires are renewed so that we enjoy worshiping God. We enjoy loving our fellow human beings, which sometimes can be hard to love. But our desires are changed and renewed. That is the effects of the work of God's regeneration in our hearts. So it's no wonder that when Jesus sits down with a very knowledgeable, very gifted, very accomplished uh, religious leader named Nicodemus, he insists that he has to be born from above in order to enter the kingdom of God. Here is Nicodemus, a person who had performed countless religious duties. But Jesus is pointing out to him, it's got to be more than what you're doing on the outside. He says, your heart must be transformed by the grace and power of God. And here was Nicodemus still pursuing a a religion of human accomplishment. And so he at that point is reminded that what he needed was not religion, he needed regeneration. And that's why Jesus said to him, you need to be made alive in Christ. You need to be born from above. And so we read there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that wonderful verse that says, If any man be in Christ, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. What old things is he talking about? Our old priorities, our old perspectives on life, our attempts to try harder and harder to do more and more good, to gain right standing before God. All those are now passed away. That's over. We don't have to mess with all that anymore. But he says, new things have come. What does he mean by the new things? Does he mean that we become rich and well-connected, have all our friends and everything goes well in life? No, he says, the new things are new habits, new affections. A new nature now characterizes our life. And so Christians are people who are being transformed by the gospel from the inside out. That's why Paul says, circumcision, eh, it's not the end all. It's not the biggest, not this religious ritual, it's not all that. It's the fact that you are to be a new creation. That's what the gospel is all about. Is that what you're sensing happening in your life? That Christ continues to work in your heart and in your life, helping you think differently, helping you have different longings? These are the things that the gospel wonderfully can and does do. Another thing that... Uh, we find here in verse 16, and this may seem like a little stretch, but I think that it's there. I'm not um, trying to impose it on the text, but it's implied, certainly. Verse 16, we read, those who will walk or live and follow this rule, rule there is the word uh, where we get the word canon, C-O-N-O-N, which means a measuring stick, this standard, if you will. He says, those who will walk or follow this standard, the standard of what? the standard of the gospel that transforms people's hearts. The gospel of grace, in which we trust what Christ did for us rather than our own attempts to gain our own merits. Those who 
live or abide by or adopt this particular uh, standard, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The word gospel means good news. And as one who has been saved by grace from this religion of self-salvation, the Apostle Paul had no qualms and no hesitation to promote or proclaim the good news that those in need of God's saving grace can find that in Christ. And so Paul affirms in verse 16 that anyone and everyone, no matter your background, no matter your failings, no matter your achievements or the lack of your achievements, religiously speaking, or no matter your heritage, if you repent of your reliance upon yourself and your own good works and you rely upon Jesus' righteousness and His payment for your sins on the cross and His resurrection from the dead to impart new life to you, you can enjoy peace with God. That's what he's saying in this text. You can fully enjoy the mercy of God. The invitation here is extended to any and all who do not know Christ. The good news is that you do not need to clean yourself up in order to come to Christ. A believer's joy is to point others to the grace of God that we have found in the gospel, and that is this. We don't have to get our act together in order to find acceptance before God. We come as sinners to a wonderful Savior who does it all for us. Just this past week, I came across an article written by a woman who got this point and wrote about it. Uh, She describes herself as a a new mother, and as a new mother is rather sleep-deprived, still recovering from a C-section, so God bless this woman. Uh, that's a, quite a combination of things they're dealing with, and a new child along top of that. And so, obviously, she admits that in that state of, of um, dealing with the massive, massive changes in her life, her house was in disarray. It was in need of a cleaning. And so a friend of hers offered to come, a woman who happens to own her own house cleaning business, She offered and said, listen, I'm coming over. I know you've got this new baby. I'm going to come over and I'm going to clean your house. No charge. Just something I want to do for you. You need help. So this woman, the new mother, days before her friend was to come and clean, she noticed something about her house. She looked in the shower, and maybe you've seen this places. You notice the curtain, the shower curtain liner can have a tendency to grow mold and can get really nasty. Well, this was a nasty one, and she describes it as absolutely disgusting, to the point where she was mortified that anyone would see that she had loud things in her house to descend down to the level where this kind of disgusting microbiological uh, uh, danger was was just uh, going wild in the shower. She didn't want her friend to question her competence as a homemaker, so what'd she do? Well, she did what any self-respecting person would do. She cleaned ahead of the cleaner. Now, what is that? That's pride. That's trying to put yourself out there and present yourself to someone as better than you really are. It's a way of saying, I don't need help. 
but you know you full well you do need help. And so the questions this woman began to ask herself, and I asked all of us today, is do we worry about what other people think of us? Do we try to present ourselves in such a way that we want other people to think we have our act together? Do we try to do a little scrubbing on ourselves at times to make sure that everything looks good before anyone sees into the different aspects of our life, our brokenness, our failings, our weaknesses? You see, the gospel says that when we stand at the foot of the cross, we stand there under the light of the cross, that other people can see us, and they see that we obviously are exposed as being people who are broken, people who are selfish, people who are obvious in our failings of our sinful heart. But thankfully, the more we are exposed by that cross, the more we find ourselves opening up to other people about the ongoing issues of sin in our lives. And as we think of the cross and the whole point of the cross, the more we can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful that I have such an awesome Savior because I obviously need one. Why would anyone be shocked to hear if our past struggles we've had in the past with sin or our present struggles with sin when the cross already tells them that we are desperately sinful people in need of a Savior? So this woman said, I'm so thankful for the gospel and the role of how the gospel helps to force my hand toward self-disclosure and toward the freedom that follows in that self-disclosure. I don't have to act like a person who has an act together. Isn't that encouraging? The fact that I'm a Christian and I trust in Christ alone is really proof positive that we live and admit our desperate state. We desperately need a Savior. None of us could ever atone for our sins or atone and somehow attain to God's holy standards. But the gospel declares that Christ has done all those on our behalf. And so what we're declaring to other people is, don't look at me as having my act together. Look at me as a person who clearly does not have my act together, but I'm trusting in one who does. And that is the good news of the gospel. So while there may be grime on the shower curtain liner of my life and of your life, because of the gospel, we don't have to clean ourselves up. We have been washed we have been sanctified, we have been justified. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have been united to brothers and sisters in a local church. And we are works of grace in process. We do not present ourselves as people who are perfectly clean and shiny and nothing of any kind of imperfections within us. We are not competitors, but we're companions and recipients of much-needed forgiveness. Our unity is found in Christ. And so we don't have to tailor our personal, uh, the way in which we present ourselves and try to impress other people and find acceptance. We find ourselves, our acceptance is in Christ. Our identity is not defined by our strength and our performance. It's found in, in the fact that we admit our failings and the fact that God is renewing His image and His wholeness and healing in us by His grace. And we have freedom to be honest about our sins and our brokenness, which will hopefully increase our love and our patience toward others around us. 
But as we said in previous weeks, Paul is contrasting the gospel with the false gospel, and he was noticing that those who have been proclaiming this false gospel, they are seeking to put heavy loads of obligation. You've got to get yourself right first before God will accept you. And the people who try to make converts like that, my friend, that is a heavy, heavy burden. You don't have the freedom to say, I'm struggling. You don't have the freedom to say, I've got some real issues that need to be cleansed and worked on. No, you need to say, I'm, I'm really doing quite well, thank you very much. I have no need of a Savior. I'm doing it all myself. But the true believers are granted this priceless gift of both peace with God and mercy shown to us by God. And therefore, what we proclaim to other people is that to anyone who believes upon Christ, to anyone who enters into this relationship with Christ and where they surrender and trust Him and repent of their sin, and as we declare about all these things out of a heart of love for others, we can say to them, listen, repent and believe upon Jesus Christ and you will know good news. The good news that you are welcome to enjoy the benefits of being on good terms with God. You can enjoy God, the God who made you. You can enjoy relating to God as children who are adopted by Him and dearly loved by Him. You can enjoy the benefits of God's removal of all these consequences of our sins. No more do you face the condemnation of your sins, Romans 8, chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1. And we can celebrate the mercy of God and our new standing which is characterized by peace with God. Can you say you've known that wonderful gift in your own life? Have you embraced Christ? That's what he's saying here. Those who will walk by this rule, if you'll adopt this kind of understanding, if you will enter into it, you will enjoy all these long lists of benefits and many countless others. Come to Christ. Trust Him. Place your faith in Him, no longer in yourself, but in Christ alone. A fourth point and final one for our reflection this morning as we finally conclude this wonderful epistle. Verse 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Now, we can interpret that, and I think it probably would be fair to say that Paul is probably alluding back to, again, saying, remember, I am an apostle. I'm a person who has suffered for this gospel that I'm trying to make sure that you uh, will hold to and defend and embrace. But I think there's another way of also expanding on this point here with Paul and his reflection. He is saying that a true Christian does not strive to attain a life of comfort and ease by adhering to worldly standards. Paul's saying, listen, I did not bought into all that, and I'm not going to buy into all that. He's saying, I'm not going to have the, follow the worldly standards of pursuing the gaining of approval of other people. I am not going to live to have people think well of me and just to try to be a people pleaser. He says, a Christian finds his identity in Jesus Christ. And so point number four is identification with Christ and his sufferings. The gospel proclaims that every sinner who repents, every sinner who believes upon Christ, is united to Christ. 
And the wonders of that are hard to plumb, hard to fully fathom and understand. Because no other religion across this world emphasizes union with their founder. Think about it. The Buddhist does not claim to know Buddha. The faithful Muslim does not claim to know Muhammad, the prophet. And Confucius, those who follow Confucianism, do not claim to know Confucius. But Christians claim to know Jesus Christ and to enjoy a vital, loving relationship with him. And so Paul says, listen, I am closely identified to Jesus Christ. So much so, he says, I've shared in his sufferings. When Paul was given 39 lashes on five different occasions, when he was stoned, when he was beaten with rods, when he was delivered over to death, he did not endure that mistreatment alone. He says Jesus Christ shared in that abusive treatment. Paul said that his body bore all these marks of persecution over the years and that he viewed those markings as his ID badge, identifying himself as a follower of Jesus Christ, who, along with Christ, who was rejected and who was hated and who was mistreated. He says, so I too have been hated and mistreated and rejected. As a Christian, those who truly are united to Christ, on some level, we are going to sense that we are out of step with the world. On some level, as we celebrate the gospel of grace and point other people to the need they have of a Savior, many will reject us. Many will become highly offended that we would proclaim these truths to them. Many will react angrily to the offense of the cross. But true Christians marvel and revel at the privilege of sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings on some level. I brought with me this morning the front cover of a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. And the front cover is a colorful picture of a woman from Indonesia. Her name is Yubelina. And I probably can't see with great detail what she looks like. But if you look closely, excuse me, she suffers the effects, the lingering effects of being attacked by a group of Muslims in the village in which she lived. And she was burned because of this attack. And so her skin is splotchy. It's not smooth at all. It's different colors. Her nose is disfigured. Her upper lip is peeling. Her left eye obviously has been severely damaged. There's red and white. And there's no pupil uh, clearly seen. She's obviously no longer able to see out of that eye. But what is amazing about that photograph of her is that she is smiling. She is full of joy. Now, why would she be smiling like that? Obviously, she must be a person now who receives stares by other people. Children would probably be afraid of her at first sight. And people in the world would probably call her damaged, ugly. And yet this woman, Eubelina, has figured out where her identity 
lies. Her identity is she is a treasured child of the king. And she has traded, as it were, this headdress of ashes for oil of gladness instead of mourning. Isaiah 61. See, her smile reveals that there's Jesus that she is identified with. Jesus has shown her honor. Jesus has shown her privilege and given her a status that is far beyond anything she would have ever found in this world as a child of God. She has a joy, she has a contentment that no name brand clothing, that no perfect haircut, no excellent form of makeup, no flawless skin or toned body could ever bring to her. She has the joy of sharing in the fellowship of Christ, her Savior's sufferings. How is it that we can explain two individuals as missionaries who were beaten unlawfully, chained in a prison cell, would respond and react by in the middle of the night, praying and singing hymns of praise to God. How do you explain that, humanly speaking? How do you explain apostles, after being flogged and ordered to stop speaking about the name of Jesus? In Acts 5, we read, they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. How do you explain that? Only way I know to explain it is because they've been identified with Jesus Christ. Is that they share in his life, they share in his joy, they share in his blessings, they share in being identified with him in a way that gives them unspeakable joy that doesn't make sense any other way. And I say to you, my friend, if you're a Christian, that joy is that which we respond to the, the unbelievable privilege of being identified with Jesus Christ in the gospel of grace, not in a gospel of works that says we have to be better. It's a gospel that celebrates what he has done for us on the basis of grace alone. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, how I pray that the wonders of this grace that we have tried to explain in this incredibly rich and powerful epistle. I pray, Father, that you would continue to open the eyes of our hearts to understand and appreciate anew and afresh this gospel of grace, the good news that you give to us what we don't deserve, and you do for us what we're unable to do in Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, I pray today as we gather around the Lord's table that you would direct our attention and our affections toward Christ. We pray that we might, Lord, not come thinking that we need to clean ourselves up before we can enjoy and partake. We pray that you would help us to come as we are, that we might partake and enjoy the knowledge that we can be united to Christ by faith, we can be identified with him, and we can have a wonderful sense of hope that we can and will and are being transformed by your gospel. Father, how we thank you and praise you for your gracious work. We pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, 
who, come, who came thinking that they would try to get themselves right with you, we pray that even today they will receive Christ by faith, that they too would partake in this meal for the first time in their life, understanding the glories of grace found in Christ. We pray these things in the strong name of our wonderful, gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.